again for joining us here today. We're continuing our our conversation on high reliability myth or possibility. And last time we talked about just culture and collaborative just culture, and we're continuing that conversation in today's podcast. Again, I have Scott Griffith with us today. Um, Him and his organization are the ones that have developed this model and taxonomy. And Scott, I appreciate you joining us again today. Oh, it's and, a pleasure, Tammy. Sure. And so today's podcast, as we stated in the last one, we're going to kind of finish up that conversation about just culture. And we're going to talk about a couple of examples out there and how this fits into the real world. So first of all, Scott, I'm going to recap a little bit on what we've talked about, especially on this last podcast. And I know that we talked specifically about the sequence of reliability and how this has to be done in sequence, the value and the importance of that. First, seeing and understanding risk. It's not just about seeing, but we also have to understand the risk. The second is about managing the systems. And systems, because they can be effective when things go right, but they also need to be resilient when something goes wrong. And then the third is managing human reliability, and that's through performance and behavior management in the order of performance and then the behavior. We also talked about choices and that everything we do is about choices. We talk about that. I know I've talked about it to my own kids about choices and the choices we make and the ramifications of those. And um, we talked about an at-risk choice reckless choice, knowingly causing unjustifiable harm, and purpose to cause unjustifiable harm. And Scott, what I think we should do here is we touched on those last four. So if you could pick it back up there, pick up those topics and talk about, go ahead and recap a little bit, I think, about the at-risk choice and the reckless, and then delve into the the other two, knowingly causing unjustifiable harm and purpose to cause unjustifiable harm. So if you could take it there, I would appreciate it. Sure, Tammy. So as we get to the human behavior portion of the sequence of reliability, there are actually nine distinct behaviors uh, that that we that we um, that we work with, and they can be categorized into two broad categories: human errors and human choices. Now, the choices can, again, can, can can run the gamut from at-risk choice, which is a choice that increases risk where risk is not recognized or mistakenly believed to be justified, to reckless choice. Higher culpable behaviors include knowingly causing unjustifiable harm and purpose to cause unjustifiable harm. But there are a couple of other choices that, that, uh, that we also care deeply about. One is um, an employee may be unclear as to what choice to make because the organization may not have been has set out their expectations very clearly. 
Or an employee may have to make a choice that's impossible. Um, the classic example is I can't get to work on time because a hurricane is is come between me and my organization or uh, the, the highway has buckled under an earthquake uh, or we may not have the uh, equipment that, that I need to perform the job. So those are cases where it may be impossible or unclear as to what action to take. Uh, the other choice is justifiable. Uh, we may sometimes justifiably not follow a rule, policy, procedure, or even a law if it serves a greater good or a higher purpose. We oftentimes write HR policies that describe intentional violations of a rule, policy, or procedure, not recognizing that there may be some instances where uh, that would be justifiable. So here's a classic example. Um a nurse walking down a hall looks into a patient room and sees a patient about to slide off of the bed. Somehow the guard has not been put up on the bed or the patient has turned over and fallen. Well, as the as the act is taking place, the nurse rushes in and literally catches the patient and prevents them from from falling to the ground. Well, she may have violated a procedure because the procedure is you must wash your hands or perform, you know, hand hygiene before entering the room. Well, we don't want that nurse stopping at the door and washing her hands or his hands for 15 seconds and yelling out at the patients, just hold on to the sheets. Don't don't fall yet. I'll be there. Just I got 12 more seconds to go. That would be a justifiable breach of a rule, policy or procedure to a, a higher a higher purpose. So there's a there's a range of choices. Again, they can be put into two categories, human error and choices. Now, there is a term, Tammy, that you and I have talked about before that often gets used but is widely misunderstood. In fact, it's ambiguous. It's the term mistake. So if someone says, I made a mistake, it might not be clear whether that person is referring to a human error, that is an inadvertent action, doing something other than what should have been done, a slip or a lapse, for example, or if the term mistake is referring to a choice that I regret the outcome. So I intended the action, but I did not intend the outcome. I regret the choice. And that can range anywhere from something as simple as an at-risk choice or a reckless choice or even higher culpable behaviors. So, so Scott, would you say then that often many industries, not just healthcare, they tend to group those together under the word mistake. Yeah. And so mistake is there's a there's a there's a few words in a collaborative just culture that we re recommend not using. And mistakes is one of them. When we describe uh, an action that's inadvertent, if I make a human error, then it should be labeled a human error. Now, here's another interesting layer to uh, the the errors that we make, the human errors that we make. Oftentimes, those human errors are strongly influenced by systems, by cultures, by other people, but also by the choices we make. So the fact that someone has a bad outcome and there was a human error involved, we wouldn't just look at the human error. If If I'm a drunk driver and I run a red light and I say, hey, I made a human error. Don't punish me. Well, 
we wouldn't necessarily punish someone for the human error, but we would strongly consider punishment for the choice to drive intoxicated. And again, the drunk driving choice influences the eventual outcome of the human errors. So what, what makes this work really challenging and fascinating is that it's you have to be able to see the systems, the environment, the culture, and how those influence behaviors, as well as the personal performance shaping factors and the choices we make. Before we label a behavior, we must first understand those influences in order to then be able to manage it. So when we see a bad event or a bad outcome, it's generally most often a combination of system contributors, cultural contributors, errors, and choices. And so we, we try to pull those apart and, 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 and see them in isolation and then address each one. Because it's not enough to just say there was a book here written about 23 years ago, published by the Institute of Medicine to Air is human was the title of the book. And, 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 and unfortunately, it, it leads one to believe that, well, anytime a human error takes place, oh, it's a human trait, so we shouldn't punish. Well, that may be true, but if the human error was caused by or influenced by a reckless choice, we would certainly consider punishment as a deterrent or some response to it. So it's not as simple as just saying I made a mistake, which could be a choice or a human error, or, oh, I made a human error. We have to be able to, to pull apart the systems, the, in, the cultural influences, and the choices we make that ultimately lead to human errors and then sometimes bad outcomes. So, Scott, the title of this myth or possibility when we talk about the IOM published that to err is human, and therefore we shouldn't punish people that make mistakes, would you put that in the myth category? Yeah, I I think that. Yeah, I think I think it's it could be fairly labeled a myth, and then we had to clarify when we talk about mistakes again. Are we talking about human errors? Are we talking about human choices and then what mm -hmm. systems contributed to it? So unfortunately, and the IOM report actually was a really positive step forward in the patient safety movement. You might even say it was the catalyst that kicked off the patient safety awareness movement. However, in my humble opinion, it put a, it put an emphasis on not punishing human error. And it and it and at least in the title, it overlooked all the system, environmental, cultural, and then behavioral choices that can lead to those human errors. And actually, the book actually does cover a lot of that in some detail. But uh, the title alone sort of biases people to think, uh, don't punish people who make a human error. So I have another question, Scott, and I've thought about this a lot. I knew that our topic was going to talk about the at-risk choices, the reckless choice. Um, knowingly causing unjustifiable harm and purpose to cause. So my question for you is, people, I think, think that no one comes to work with the intent to harm. And I think we would probably even have some leaders, leadership that say, no, no, no one would come to work to cause with the intent to cause harm. 
I'd like to talk about that a little bit because I think there is, I think there are those cases. Can you talk about that a little bit for us, please? Oh, absolutely. And, and this is a very, I have a poignant story to tell about that. Um, and first off, for any leader uh, that, 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 that wants to believe that no one comes to work to harm their patients or their customers. Uh, I get it. It's an aspirational hope. We, we look for the best in people. However, we don't want to be naive. Interesting story. Uh, several years ago, I was working at a company that, uh, that employed uh, paramedics and the CEO of that company made that statement that no one comes to work to harm their patients. And, and I, spoke right after and I had to respectfully say that I disagreed and he wanted to argue with me. And and I said, well, have you heard of a fellow named Michael Zwango? And he said, no. And for those of our listeners that are familiar with the National Patient, I guess, Physician Registry, it was precipitated by Dr. Michael Zwango, who is currently serving a life sentence in a, a federal penitentiary penitentiary in Colorado for murdering uh, several patients. In fact, they think dozens of patients. And the interesting story about this was I had a colleague, a dear friend of mine who was one of my business partners, Chuck Gruber, Chief Chuck Gruber of the Illinois uh, Chiefs of Police Association. He was the a, a local police chief in Rockford, Illinois. But he had evidence in his community that Dr. Zwango was poisoning his own patients. And and uh, and so Dr. Zwango would move from Illinois into Missouri, a neighboring state. And after Missouri, he moved to another state. And after Missouri, he moved to Africa. And every time he would move, the medical boards in those states didn't have access to his previous records. So even if he'd been cited for involvement in patients dying, those records didn't transfer to the medical board. So then he moved to Africa, killed another couple dozen at least patients. And then he got a job in, in, in Canada. And as he was flying from Africa through the States to then go to Canada, Chief Chuck Gruber and his detectives arrested him at O'Hare Airport in Chicago and where he was then brought to justice and put in the penitentiary. But the interesting thing about this story and the reason I say it was poignant, the chief medical officer at this company, while we were talking, the CEO and I and, and all the other leaders looked up and raised his hand and said, Dr. Zwango poisoned me. And it turns out it turns out that during before he became a physician, Dr. Zwango was a paramedic and he and this fellow were paramedic partners together. And the fellow that raised his hand wasn't feeling well. And it turned out he was being poisoned with arsenic. So Dr. Zwango would often poison people to either and sometimes resuscitate them, sometimes not. But it turns out that he and, and so then this fellow and I won't mention his name, he looked over at the CEO and said, so I believe Scott's right. Sometimes people do come to work intending to harm their patients. Now, I don't tell that story to, to reflect on the healthcare industry at all. Because the, the healthcare industry is is filled with amazing people who are uh, dedicated to what they do. But in any occupation, whether it be school teacher, pilot, paramedic, or physician, or nurse, or housekeeper, there will be people for whatever reason 
our intent to harm. So that brings us to what we call the higher culpable behaviors. So, Scott, I would like to add to that, and I, I agree with what you just said. It, it, it's I don't know the statistics, but it's probably extremely rare that people do intend to come to work to harm. But I think our bigger point here is that let's don't put them all in one category. Let's don't say a mistake, quote unquote, covers people that um, inadvertently pick up the wrong medicine or with people that really do come to work with the intent to harm. And I think that's the point here, that there are different levels. There are don't put everybody in the same category that it's a mistake. That's correct. I mean, Dr. Zwengel could say, oh, it was a mistake to, to, to kill so many patients, but that was not a human error. Um, so as you ask for some clarification, we will talk a little bit here about what we call the higher culpable behaviors. And the first one is knowingly causing unjustifiable harm and purpose to cause unjustifiable harm. And before we define those and 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 and, and clarify them, we first distinguish it from the term recklessness. So the reckless choice is the choice to consciously disregard a substantial and unjustifiable risk. Now, there's three elements to that, conscious disregard, substantial, unjustifiable. Now, all three of those must be present. It's actually a term taken from the model penal code in the criminal justice system that we have translated into the organizational context. But it it happens to be a pitch perfect definition. Now, that's often equated with the term gross negligence in the law. The problem with using the term gross negligence is people get confused between that term and the term negligence. Negligence can mean either human error, at-risk choice, reckless choice, or higher culpable. So negligence is a term that we don't recommend using. So we stick with the term reckless as as the line where we we would consider discipline or, or punishment. The reckless choice is a choice that is substantial and and unjustifiable with, and this is an important part, with no intention to causing harm. Now, people get surprised by that because they say, well, that was a reckless choice. Well, think about the drunk driver. The drunk driver doesn't typically intend to cause harm. Their, Their intention is to get home or to get to a destination, but they're taking a choice that's substantial and unjustifiable by societal standards. But again, recklessness, no intention to cause harm. The the higher culpable behaviors of knowingly causing harm is where I take an action and I know that action is practically certain to cause harm, but I do it anyway. That's not the same as the drunk driver saying, I want to get to work. By the way, I think I mentioned last time the National Highway Safety Traffic Administration, to get that right, National Highway Traffic Traffic Safety Administration estimates that for every drunk driver arrested, they have driven drunk 88 times previously without having gotten caught. So that tells you the drunk driver is not wanting to harm. They're just going wanting to get to where they're going and they and they're intoxicated. But now if I take an action that I know is practically certain to harm someone, but I take it anyway, that involves knowledge 
toward the harm that will likely resolve. Now, if a nurse, for example, is, is diverting a drug, there can be a number of reasons why a nurse would divert a drug. And for those listeners that aren't specific to healthcare, drug diversion is stealing a drug or misdirecting a drug, taking it out of where it's supposed to be and either taking it home or selling it or, or diverting it to another patient. There's a number of ways that that can occur. So let's just say that nurse is addicted to the drug. It's an opioid and or they want to sell it for some reason. If it's intended for a patient, but the nurse takes it away and gives another drug, that nurse knows that it is causing harm to the patient. It's at least withholding a treatment that could cause or perpetuate harm. That might not be the nurse's purpose to harm that patient. Their purpose might be I'm addicted to it or I want to sell it for profit or I want to give it to some other person. But but knowingly causing harm is not the same as purpose to cause harm, like Dr. Michael Zwango. There, there's a difference between I, I'm doing something for a purpose, and it just so happens that I'm harming someone. That's not my intention, but I'm going to do it anyway. It's like in, in law school, they teach the, the case where, hypothetically, a bank, bank robbers go into a bank, and their purpose is to steal the money. But during the process, they get into a fight and they shoot a guard or they shoot a customer. They didn't go in intending to do that, but they were willing to do it in order to steal the money. As opposed to someone that went in with the intention of causing murder. You see the, you see the difference here. Now, these are distinctions that we don't spend a lot of time on, but we have to understand that there are distinctions. Now, in any of those cases where it's knowledge or purpose to cause unjustifiable harm inside an organization. That's the place where you're going to clearly discipline or punish, but you're going to go beyond. You're going to, in most of these cases, you're going to turn them over to authorities, whether it be law enforcement or um, professional boards or some other entity that's responsible for managing risk beyond the, the organization. So, so, but, but we have to recognize when we see that, what our obligations are. Now, I want to make, make something very clear here. In a collaborative just culture environment, we're not just talking about safety risk. It could be financial risk. It could be uh, privacy risk. If someone goes into a, a electronic health record with the intention of rooting out some information and making it public, that could be knowingly or purposefully causing harm. So, so it doesn't have to be patient safety or employee safety or or visitor safety. It can be any any number. We call these the attributes of highly reliable organizations. And just a quick review, it could be safety related, privacy related, customer satisfaction related, uh, financial infrastructure. It could be a number of what we call attributes of highly reliable organizations. So when we look at these behaviors, there are distinctions that we will make to each behavior, and we will respond differently to the behavior after we have looked at the risks, the systems, and the human performance factors. But again, just a quick review. Those those behaviors are many. There's actually nine of them. Uh, there's There's the justifiable choice where I broke a rule, policy, procedure, or even a law because it was the right thing to do. 
There's the impossible choice, which means I can't meet an employer's expectation because there's no possibility of me being able to do it. There's the unclear choice where I made a choice, but I was unclear what the employer wanted me to do in this circumstance. I didn't have adequate guidance to know what they wanted me to do in the moment. There can be human errors. There can be at-risk choices, reckless choices, and then the higher culpable choices are knowingly causing unjustifiable harm and purposefully causing unjustifiable harm. We will isolate each of those behaviors and respond to them differently. Thank you for that, Scott. The next thing that I want to do, we talked about is Cass, that we were going to kind of review a couple of real world cases, if you will. So the first one that I wanted to bring up, I know was in the news, but we're going to say it's hypothetical because we don't know all of the details, but we, I think it's a really good case to walk through um, with the lens of being a collaborative just culture program. I think that that will kind of open our eyes to a different view, if you will. So I'm going to give just a few details and have you respond to them. So as a nurse, they're given an order. This particular nurse had an order for a medication to administer to this patient that was uh, having a procedure done. When she put in the medication uh the name of the medication into the medication dispensing system, nothing came up for that medication. So she did an override, which often nurses can do. Um, so she put an override, put in the first couple of letters of this, and a different medication came out, and that's that's what she pulled. This particular medication was a paralytic, which paralyzed the patient. Ultimately, the patient passed. Now, I don't this is not to pass judgment on the nurse. It's more about the process. We want to talk about that process in the lens of a collaborative just culture. So the nurse, the one thing that I want to particularly bring about was the nurse was fired. Once this came out, she was immediately fired. Now, I'm not saying she should or should not be. But there again, I would like for you to take us through the lens of what we've been talking about with collaborative just culture. Sure, Tammy, I'm happy to. And in and, and this hypothetical case, if I'm not mistaken, not only was this nurse fired, but the state board uh, took action and revoked her license. And subsequently, the district attorney, uh, a district attorney, prosecuted her criminally. She was convicted by a jury and a judge probated the sentence. Now, the 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 patient safety community rose to the occasion, all of them being critical of the criminal justice system. In our view, the dominoes that fell starting in the hospital should be looked at first because this case would have never gotten to the nursing board or the state district or the district attorney or the jury or then the judge had it not been for the response of the hospital. Now, Again, because we aren't privy to all the details, let's show how we would look at this from a collaborative, just culture environment. So, Scott, then would you start with seeing and understanding the risk first? Absolutely, because because when we look at a human's behavior, we're not trying to only manage the human being or the employee. 
we're, we're, we're managing risk and risk lies in our systems, our culture, our environment, and in the actions of our employees. But if we fire a nurse, that doesn't necessarily mean we have managed the risk. What we're trying to do is, is see and understand and then manage the risk. Now, when we look at seeing and understanding, there, there, there are separate words for a reason. Sometimes we see a risk, but we don't understand it. This was the case when SARS-CoV-2 first appeared in January of 2020, that the medical community understood it to be a new novel coronavirus, but they didn't know precisely how it would propagate from person to person. So we saw it, but we didn't understand it. So it took us until around, took around, if I'm recall correctly, the CDC didn't recommend masking for the general public until about May because they didn't recognize the possibility of aerosol spread of the virus. So we saw it, but we didn't fully understand it. Other times we understand a risk, like we understand drunk driving, but we don't see it unless there's evidence of it. It, or unless there's a crash. So uh, the, according to NHTSA, for every drunk driver arrested 88 times, they've driven drunk 88 times previously. We understand it, but we don't always see it. That's an important concept for an organization to recognize going into this. Just because we had a bad outcome, the question is, did the risk lie in our systems or in the human performance or the human behavior? And the answer in most cases is yes to all of those. Simply firing or retraining an individual doesn't remove the risk from your system, if it exists, doesn't remove it from the environment or the culture. So what we would do is we would we would look to, does the organization see and understand it? So this nurse allegedly overrode the, the, the drug name that popped up and retrieved the incorrect drug. The first question we would ask is, how often has this happened before? And I have to believe that that medical dispensing or that uh, medical dispensing cabinet is electronic and has records of how often overrides had occurred. Now, did the organization on a routine basis look at how many overrides were taking place and then I would ask the question of, well, why would a paralytic drug be able to be overridden? Uh, and, and now we're getting into the system. So, but before we get into the systems, did the organization see it? And, and did they understand it? Well, we probably understand it. We understand the dangers of overriding a drug and getting the wrong drug. That's pretty easy to understand, but I'm not sure the organization saw it or knew how prevalent it was. The first step, oftentimes people say when they learn about our work, collaborative culture is a systems first approach, right? And I say, no, before we look at the system, we must first see and understand the risk. If we don't agree on what we're looking at in terms of risk, we're not just trying to manage the human being, we're trying to manage the risk. And we will do definitely manage the human behavior, but we have to start with, did we see and understand? Now there's something called risk intelligence and something called risk tolerance. So risk intelligence means the individual's or the organization's ability to understand the risk and, and, and how likely it would be and how severe it could be 
were to occur. So my first question to the organization is, did the nurse manager, did the director of nursing, did the quality department, did they understand, did they see and understand that these overrides were taking place? And if so, did they tolerate it or did they not know about it? Did they not bother to go look or not know that they needed to go look? Because they train people to act, but the system, now we move into the system. The, the system component that we're addressing here is the medical dispensing cabinet itself. And it goes by different brand names depending on the location. But whatever the, 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 the name of that cabinet, it's an electronic system that, that keeps records that are optimized for multiple purposes, including billing and ease of use, expediency for a nurse to be able to get it, get the medication close to where they're going to administer it. But that system was effective when used as designed, but it was not resilient when things went wrong. In this case, a nurse could easily override it. Now, we could go back in retrospect and say, well, we will let nurses override almost any drug, but not a high alert med or not a drug that's a paralytic that could cause that level of, of incapacitation or death. Those are the kinds of questions that a collaborative risk review would ask had this occurred in a collaborative just culture environment. Before we get to the nurse's behavior, we would be asking those questions in a collaborative venue or forum. We would have doctors there. We would have nurses there. We would have pharmacists there. Wouldn't you agree that doctors, nurses, and pharmacists all have a stake in how that medical dispensing cabinet is operated? Absolutely. So did we have the proper controls to make that system not only effective, but resilient when things went wrong. So I could say from an outside looking in, the system was not resilient against human choice, which you might say was the human error. As we just discussed previously, she administered the wrong med by error, but the choice to override was a conscious choice. That was a, either an at risk or a Reckless choice, depending on how we would stand in judgment. But before we can get there, we have to start with seeing and understanding the risk, looking at the system. Now, there's a lot of improvement there in that system. We would go in and look at how often does the organization monitor and measure its activity? Because there, there were likely precursors to this event happening that, that went unnoticed by someone. So we would address Step one, seeing and understanding risk. Step two, looking at the system for both effectiveness and resiliency. Then we come over to the performance, human performance. And the human performance is looking at what knowledge, skills, abilities, and proficiencies were in play. If I'm not mistaken, the circumstances around this hypothetical event was that nurse was also precepting another nurse. So that means that it, at a very minimum, there was a potential for distractions. That is, when you're teaching someone something, they could be asking you questions. So that, that nurse might have been under some time pressure or workload saturation. All of those factors we don't know because we don't have access to the full reports. But we would examine those factors to understand what may have influenced the choice to override the med, 
which led to the error of administering the wrong med. And then, as I understand it, the choice not to, to remain with the patient. All of those would have been would be examined in, in, in due time and in due process. So when we got to that place, we would have seen all the contributors that would have led to the human choices and the human errors. Now, how we stand in judgment, we have to defer that until we get into what we call a triad environment. And triad environment in a collaborative culture involves the, the organization that 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 is in in the operation, that is the nurse or the nurse manager, the human resources department, and then the quality or patient safety department. Those three would form the the the, the members of the triad. And that by process would have to all agree unanimously before decisions are made around how to respond to the employee. Now, we're not able to do that here. It would be inappropriate for us to speculate. All we can say is in a collaborative culture environment, before we would have stood in judgment on the employee and, and taken action, we would have been looking at the risk and the systems and performance, human performance first. And we would have learned significant information along the way and how we manage the risk. What's missing from public view is what the organization is or is not doing inside the organization around their risk and the systems. They may have been doing something, but we don't know. What we do know is that they chose the action to terminate the nurse's employment, which led to other dominoes following, and she ended up losing her license and becoming criminally convicted. We believe in a collaborative culture, those dominoes likely would not have fallen because we think the organization would have been managing the risk and not just the individual. And from that, we believe would have come a much more comprehensive uh, response to the risk that were identified. Now, would it be possible that that nurse could have been uh, disciplined in some way? Absolutely. Could it have even resulting in termination? Perhaps. But as we go down that chain of dominoes that fell, we think it's less and less likely that we would have gotten to the place we got. We think this organization could have managed the risk differently from what we understand. Again, we're speaking in hypothetical terms because we don't have all the details, but there is a more systematic way to manage risk than blame and shame the individuals involved. Scott, with that, a comment would you say is not only the end result may have been different, but when we talk about risk and we talked about preventing this in the future by going through the step by step process, the chances are increased that this would not happen again. Absolutely. For, for two reasons. One, the step-by-step -step process, we would have been, the organization would have been focused on the risk and not the individual. So that would have been a more comprehensive response to what the bad outcome. But, but there's another factor here, which affects not only this hospital, but virtually every other hospital in America and perhaps worldwide, at least anyone that's familiar with this event, the the inadvertent consequence of what happened when those dominoes fell was that the the risk of chilling nurse reporting went up. Nurses that recognize, OK, if I make a quote, we've already discussed the term mistake. 
it could be human error or human choice. Most often, choices and errors are tied together inside risky systems. For those nurses, the, 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 the message that got communicated was don't report this. You could be, you too could be disciplined or even fired. So it chills the, the environment that we're looking for. We want nurses coming forward and reporting risk, not just the events. And that's another very important point for our listeners. Most patient safety reporting systems are labeled as event reports. But let's take a hypothetical scenario. Let's say I'm a nurse working in a hospital and I go to a medical dispensing cabinet, either a Pyxis or an Omnicil or an AccuDose, and I pull a med and I override the med and I pull the wrong medication. But I don't know it. I think I got the correct med. And I go to bedside and right before I'm about to administer it, the person I'm precepting says, Scott, I think you've got the wrong medication in your hand. And I look at it and say, oh, my gosh, I was distracted. You're right. I've got the wrong med. And I go put it back. Do you think I'm going to report that into a patient safety event reporting system? No. And I correct me if I'm wrong for a couple of reasons. One, if the atmosphere is that we're going to get in trouble, then you're less likely to report it. I think is a primary thing there. Um, I, I think that's probably my answer is just that, you know, there's a chance that we're not going to in this situation because of the way it's been set up. But the other thing is, like you said, the difference in event reporting and risk reporting. If the culture at the hospital is we report events, we have an event reporting system then nothing happened. There was no event. And I don't have a mechanism for reporting a risk. Right. And the example that I give um, when I do training sessions is let's play a game and I'm your insurance agent for your automobile. And if I say to you, Tammy, would you call me uh, as your insurance agent anytime you have a near miss? Or if you would you call me if you drive over the speed limit or talk on a cell phone? Most people are, are not going to do that because they, they, they're, they're worried about their rates going up. And so that the same mentality, it's not always fear of punishment that, that would cause someone not to report. It's often just fear of embarrassment. Uh, I mean, how often do you see people go up to their boss and say, hey, you don't know this and you would never know this, but I did something really risky today that could have harmed a patient. I just want you to know about it so we can prevent others from doing it. Okay, I know that happens on some rare occasions, but it's not what we see in patient safety event reporting systems. There's usually some threshold by which an employee says it didn't hurt anybody, a la the outcome bias, so I don't have to report it, which is not our intention, by the way. But what we do, there, there, we should do another podcast, Tammy, on all the incentives around risk reporting. An organization has to pay very careful attention to what will inspire someone to turn in a report. And there's a host of, uh, of uh, deterrence, the things that they want, reasons they wouldn't report, and a whole host of reasons why they would report if the organization recognizes them and responds appropriately. 
but there's a science to that. And in my humble opinion, I'm not sure healthcare has has broken the code on that science just yet. We will, but that's part of the collaborative culture is that we show organizations how to set up risk reporting systems with strong programs that support it so that an employee is guaranteed how they will be responded to. They're not just punished for bad outcomes. They're not just punished when things go wrong. They're incentivized to report risk long before the patient is harmed or some other attribute is is jeopardized. Which I'll bring up here. That's one of our goals here is to talk about, we've got our iceberg model and it talks about getting to the point that we're looking below the waterline. And to be able to do that, we need people to report risk. Correct. So that we don't end up with an adverse event. That's that's the ultimate goal. Um, and a very vital and important part of, of being a high reliable organization. Scott, I think we've reached our time, unfortunately. Yes. I really wanted to go over another case, but I think we're going to have to do that another time. So I appreciate this. I think it's been a, a, a great podcast, a great discussion on uh, the last uh, two podcasts talking about collaborative just culture. Um, on our next podcast, we're going to talk about the reliability management team, what the reliability management team what they do, their value, et cetera. We're going to move to that one next. That'll be our next podcast. And then subsequently, we're on the next podcast, we're going to view some of our organizations. I'll be interviewing them. Scott, is there anything else you would like to bring up today before we close? Absolutely. For As a little teaser for our listeners, uh, if you'll tune in next time, I will tell a story about myself in aviation, where I was on the horns of a dilemma on whether to report a risk that I was personally involved in. Oh, that should be very interesting, Scott. I appreciate that. And I appreciate everyone listening. Um, and again, uh, high reliability, myth or possibility. We're going to continue our discussion on our next podcast. Thank you again, Scott, for joining us and for all of our listeners. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.